This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by two colleagues who've unglued themselves from various government buildings in order to record this podcast with me here. We've got our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reid and digital journalist Hamish Penman. Any trouble at the pumps this week, gents? Uh, a lot of just stop oil guys kicking about. Have you been fine or any disruption? Well, I mean, sadly, sadly nothing. <laughs> I mean, I was uh, I actually went for a bit of a spin down to the south coast earlier this week. Uh, and didn't didn't see nothing, so oh. uh, came back and just dis- dis- discovered a whole host of uh, process been going on in my absence. Well, I, see, I don't think we've had it that badly up here up north, uh, and I, I just assumed from the coverage that every petrol station in England had been uh, just swarmed. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been fine. Hamish, you, you've been okay, haven't you? Yeah, well, I don't think um, environmental anti-oil protesters carry the the same weight in Aberdeen as they do in perhaps other other parts of the world. I think they'd be met with a bit more. Um, opposition here mm, I, I think that's probably a fair assessment uh but yeah let's let's stay with that uh we'll kick off this week with the as you've heard the series of actions uh, over the course of well wednesday in the main of this week including some protesters entering shell's headquarters and yes gluing themselves to government buildings um has their argument stayed strong like good pvc glue hamish or is it more of a more of a prit stick job Ooh. Well, that's a tough one. First up, it's <laughs> um, a nice, nice metaphor. I worked hard on that. I thought about art attack and everything. <laughs> I thought, what glue does Neil Buchanan use? And there we are. Anyway, on you go. Well, yeah, it remains to be seen uh, the strength of their glue. We'll, um, we'll we'll decide that in the in the coming in the coming weeks. But yeah, protests on the streets of London, protests on the streets of Edinburgh. Uh, yes, the environmental groups have been out in force over the last few days, and on a Wednesday in particular. Uh, targets, as you mentioned, Alistair, included Bayes, the UK government cabinet office in Edinburgh, where uh, Energy Voice actually held an event recently. Oh, a little plug for that. Uh, oh. And uh, Shell's London don't, HQ Don't come well. to our events. Yeah. <laughs> Probably won't be holding any more there. We'll see. <laughs> and yeah, Shell's London uh, headquarters as well took a, took a bit of a... Took a bit of a pasting. Um, so a whole host of different factions were out and about. We had a Just Stop Oil, Stop Cambo, uh, the newly minted Stop Jackdaw, Extinction Rebellion, Extinction Rebellion Scientist, Extinction Rebellion Buddhists, I spotted, uh, the Judean People's Front, the People's Front of Judea. They were all out there, all um, in one shape or form. Wow. Um, and we had been forewarned about these demonstrations, I think, I think a couple of months ago, Extinction Rebellion kind of made their intentions known um, to undertake, I in their words, the biggest uh, disruption ever until their demand that the fossil fuel economy is brought to an end. Uh, and unsurprisingly, a few protesters have been uh, lifted along the way, at least 10 for spray painting the um, Extinction Rebellion kind of a sand timer logo, I believe it is, on the, the side of the base building. Uh, we also had people supergluing themselves to the building, to Shell's front desk, outside Shell. Uh, and it's understood that a number broke into Shell's um, office building and uh, are also now being held at Her Majesty's ple- uh, pleasure. Uh, so they broke, I think it was just after lunchtime, they broke in, as Extinction Rebellion said, somewhere aiming for the eighth floor, not entirely sure what happens on the eighth floor, but that was the one they were going for. But they wanted to confront Shell workers and tell them to to jump ship and to stop working for the company. And downstairs or on the ground floor, they had one of those kind of trampoline things that that fire that fire services hold at the bottom of 
kind of if there's a burning building oh, and people gosh. need to jump out, then they oh, had wow. that emblazoned on one of those kind of trampoline esque things oh. um, as a. As a I was wondering where you were going with that. Yeah, no, that's crazy. As a, as yeah, a, oh, as a metaphor, I think. <laughs> Um, but yeah, according to news reports, around 100 people from Extinction Rebellion also held up signs with the name of uh, an individual, uh, individual Shell employee saying, please join us, which I don't know about you, but seems quite sinister. Seems a bit creepy, doesn't it? Seems a bit creepy, lads. Yeah, it does. Let's leave the people, individual employees' names out of it. Why don't we? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the end, those that glued themselves to the front desk, they were demanding to speak to HR. No idea why HR specifically, and others wanted to speak to Ben Van Buren, which makes a bit more sense, but I don't know if he was actually in the building or not. Was he taking calls? <laughs> he was out for lunch. <laughs> um, yeah, they were actually, and Extinction Rebellion were actually protesting in London on Saturday as well, um, and I know because I bumped into them on the tube. I was down there for a stag do, and... Just a bit of background, the stag himself was a little bit, he wasn't firing on all cylinders at about 8.30 on Saturday morning as we made our way for a bottomless brunch. Huh. And an Extinction Rebellion protester started speaking to him. And just kind of off, off the cuff, Robbie said, oh, what are you up to? He said, oh, we're, we're Extinction Rebellion, we're off to uh, Hyde Park. And Robbie in his fairly um, dazed state said, oh, are you a band? <laughs> <laughs> Which the guy was less than happy with. That's great. Um, That's great. But yeah, it's some pretty large-scale protests going on. And I mean, we do kind of poke fun at these things, but we do genuinely respect these people who have tried to protest and, and the, the important role they do have to play in holding industry's feet to the fire on these things. But I think there is a bit of a difference when you're kind of making wild, unrealistic demands and holding the country to ransom until they're met. I mean, Extinction Rebellion wants net zero by 2025. Not going to happen. Just Stop Oil wants to kind of eradicate the fuel the country runs on and, and, and enter all the oil companies, many of which have just signed agreements to build big offshore wind farms in Scottish waters in the last few days. So I don't know how they square that, but you could argue they're not moving quickly enough. And, and many in the industry would probably agree with you. But to say they're doing nothing, in a, I mean, that's just kind of not not really holding so yes to protests but also yes to reason i mean i think i think it's, it's it is really interesting isn't it and i think as you say right you should always respect people uh who are willing to get arrested for their beliefs i mean i think that's you know obviously an extraordinary thing to do and and one that i uh would would find it you know hard to to, to do but i mean i think it was it was really interesting because I, I read a book about a month or so ago called something like how to blow up a pipeline what <laughs> and it's by uh, a, a a sort of a I think he's maybe a, a Finnish academic called Andreas Malm. And he was essentially advocating for, you know, more sort of direct action, you know, more sort of in terms of sabotage in terms of, in order to highlight the, uh, you know, this, 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 the, the, the problem of, you know, of, of global warming. And I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? How we've seen sort of Extinction Rebellion come about as a sort of an extension of, you know, the sort of the, the kind of classic environmentalist NGOs like, like Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth and Extinction Rebellion have kind of moved that on. And I think there's there have also been, been indications that maybe more is coming, right? I mean, I think I saw was it in March there was a, there was there was a, a sort of a wave of, I mean, you could call them attacks of people letting down the tires of SUVs in central London, you know, saying, look, you know, you, this we're doing this for the environment, you know, this is not how you should you shouldn't be using cars like this at a time like this, essentially. And so I think you know, I mean, I think it's it it, it is easy to say these people. People are absolutely crazy in their demands to see change to the extent and you know and the, the timelines that they say. But at the same time, right, in the last 
I don't know, six months, we've seen a total reversal. We've mentioned it before, right? The kind of, you know, the cop. Everyone was sort of saying, you know, oil and gas is, you know, sort of out of favour. And now oil and gas back in a big way. We're saying, you know, hello, Cambo, Jackdaw, you know, people are talking, you know, kind of coal mining is coming back. Uh, we're, you know, doing everything we can. And obviously that's kind of driven by the energy security side of things. But it's clearly not going in the right direction for Extinction Rebellion, for uh, people, you know, worried about the fact that, you know, the ice caps are melting and uh, the climate is changing, which, you know, ultimately is a problem for all of us. Mm. Yeah, no, I, th I think I would, I would probably echo what both of you guys said there. I think there is an important role for activists um, in keeping the wolf at the door. Yes, we do um, uh, poke fun at them uh, occasionally, uh, as I I do because I'm I'm just a, I'm just I'm just a bad guy. But yeah, we, we uh, poke fun at everyone, don't we? Well, we do. It's it's um, yeah, rough with the smooth, isn't it? Yeah, the the. the there's an important role there, keeping the wolf at the door. Um, none of these oil companies or energy companies, whatever way they brand themselves, should be feeling comfortable about the climate crisis. But I think there is that question of how do you get to net zero? I don't know which one of you guys said somebody was asking for it by 2025. I would I would, I would venture that is impossible. Um, how do you get, I mean, you can build more EVs, but part of the conversation is what are these EV components made out of? I would bet a good amount of money. A lot of them uh, to do, has to do with mining and certainly fossil fuels, hydrocarbons. You know, uh, similar um, issues with uh, carbon fiber. I mean, uh, <laughs> hydrocarbons is, is in the name quite literally for offshore wind and things like that. So, uh, I think we just need to have this this nuanced conversation a bit more. And and you know, by saying and you know not to retread old ground for this podcast, but you know by saying you know that new new oil and gas fields is driving back the energy transition, I mean, it, it is actually enabling it because we have, well, data from the OGA, you know, the North, North Sea Transition Authority, no new oil and gas fields means UK's oil and gas sector when winding down by 2030. Um, then where are you looking for, for the jobs, for floating wind, for carbon capture and storage for hydrogen? Um, because if we lose that skills base, then how are we making that happen? How do you get to net zero, I think is the question we should leave hanging in the air for some of these people who have, seem to seem to have no nuance, but there we are. Um, <laughs> so, uh, speaking of no nuance, it's my section uh, next. So, uh, we'll 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 continue with the energy transition, uh, and we'll stick with jobs, uh, big offshore wind contracts, but uh, heading east, I think. Um, we're back after this. Energy Voice presents Tracking Transition (CCUS). Carbon capture, utilization, and storage is an essential solution for the world to reach net zero helping to eliminate emissions from industries such as energy, steel, cement and chemicals. Established infrastructure and vast offshore storage capacity gives the UK a strategic advantage. This will be key to the UK's push towards net zero by 2050, and the UK can act as a springboard for CCUS development around Europe. CCUS, the latest in our Tracking Transition series, kicks off on May the 9th, with Session 1 focusing on the UK and Europe. Together with our principal partner, SSE Thermal, we will analyse the UK's expanding CCUS sector and the rich export opportunities it will generate. There will also be a focus on developments in other European countries and the emerging synergies across the industry. Register free for this virtual event at trackingccus.com. 
So, uh, yeah, so this week we've had news from NOV and Lamprell. Uh, Lamprell, uh, the, the UAE-based uh, fabricator, has been selected um, as the, the, well, the fabricator for a trio of, of floating wind farms, about one gigawatts each in the central North Sea and west of Shetland. This project's from Sorellian Winds uh, and was not linked to the recent Scotwind round. Um, and what I should say right off the bat is, is Lamprell are... are really just doing their jobs here. They are a business, they are competing for work. Uh, any reasonable um, business in that position would would be doing the same, I, I would argue. But I, I think what's happening is we are starting to see more and more of a pattern of um, manufacturing and fabrication work um, going overseas. We, we've obviously seen, that's been the story of offshore wind in Scotland for the past 10 years, really, I think it's fair to say, unfortunately. And um, we continue to have these big projects coming through. This is a floating wind project, which is which is new. The argument has been that Scotland could get out in front on floating wind, but uh, the fabrication manufacturing is going uh, overseas. So this one at least has slipped through the cracks. So this is... Uh, the detail on this is Lamprell um, was, as I said, selected as the, the fabricator. Last year we had from Sorellian Winds, the developer, they announced that NOV, which is a company based in the US, was the key partner for the floating and mooring systems. Uh, it's a 200 turbine development. And as I say, it was announced this week that Lamprell uh, was selected for fabrication, assembly and outfitting. And there is some detail in there uh, about, you know, uh, the two working together and discussions with the UK supply chain, UK yards. Um, I did ask Lamprell for detail on what percentage of jobs and, and local content will be seen in the UK versus uh, the UAE, uh, to which we had no reply, um, which I think is probably quite telling. Um and yeah, and this this also comes after I think it was last month. Um, Lamprell won uh, work for a significant number of jackets for Murray West. I think you wrote about that, Hamish. A uh, hundred and fifty million pound uh, contract. And again, you know, uh, they are just doing their jobs. Uh, you know, they we're not aiming to to demonise this particular fabricator. That might be the effect of it, unfortunately. But the the, the point is. We we constantly hear about these ambitions for offshore wind in Scotland, manufacturing, fabrication. It's just not happening. And the Scotland projects that will be coming through, I guess, towards the end of this decade, you know, we're going to have to go a long, long way to ensure we're getting the, the lion's share of that work because that's going to come around very, very quickly. And Sorellian Winds, I should just say quite diplomatically, they sent a statement which referred to the need for large capacity fabrication in Scotland in order to do what they're doing. And they said that that's currently being developed, which you might take as saying it's currently being developed. It's not there yet. And I think if you look at what we have here, you've got... What have you got? You've got Arnish, you've got Methyl, the, the Harland and Wolf facilities. It's just not enough for a 200 turbine project, is it? I mean, yes, we're building capacity at Leith, at Cromarty Firth, Aberdeen, Kishorn and elsewhere, but is it is it there in place just yet? Uh, I'm not sure it is. So, you know, we can cry about labour costs overseas, um, but if the capacity here isn't there, um, then maybe that argument becomes, you know, less tenable at this point. I don't know what you guys think about it, but it, it it does seem to be sending a little bit of alarm bells ringing, particularly for the the unions at this point. It does, yeah. And I, I'd completely get that these projects can't be completely built in Scotland. There isn't that capacity there. But like we saw with NNG, there is capacity to build some of them in mm. Scotland or to get some of the fabrication work done. They've got a, a handful of jackets are being being made there. And that was Infrastructure's first, or Harland & Wolf now, their, their kind of first major contract having taken on the yards. And that's really helped them to get those ships shape. 
now the, the, I don't see why that couldn't be the same. They're obviously the, they're trying to build a, a very expensive project here. Trying to keep costs is uh, costs low must be a priority. But you would think there is capacity to at least try and kind of help these businesses along and 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 help these these yards get up and running because well if if Scotland is going to deliver we're going to need them i mean it, it just kind of feels like for the last couple of years we've been hearing that right it's a line in the sand we the fact that projects before got built overseas that's a thing of the past it's going to change mm. but it i don't know it just kind of seems to be keep getting the kang keeps getting kicked down the road on it and it seems to be right well the next project will deliver it no the next project no it's going to be scotland but those projects won't hit for another five years it just you can understand why the unions get really frustrated does it can i can i ask a question does it just rely on kind of the kindness of companies to say oh yes we're going to build some things locally or is there a requirement i mean because i mean i mean so obviously you know like looking at say you know nigeria right and obviously they have a whole thing about kind of local content and in order to try and encourage local industry to grow up which is obviously important for you know growing the economy and providing jobs and you know a tax base and things like that they say look you have to have a certain amount of local construction done locally um you know then and they provide actual you know sort of you know percentages of you know fabrication or you know welding or or, or whatever that has to be done locally and i mean is there is there is that that sort of scope for that here is or, or or is it something that should be considered in like when companies are bidding for in say scotland when they're saying look you can have millions of our pounds should they also be saying look you should you we will commit to doing i don't know 20 percent or 70 percent or whatever some some amount of the work locally in order to provide a sort of a continuing return yeah th- there's there's a couple of, of- very good point, Ed. Um, so uh, the first thing to say, uh, in 2020, the, the offshore wind industry signed a deal with the UK government to commit themselves to uh, up to 60% lifetime UK content in domestic projects, up from the current 50% by 2030. Now, we should we should highlight that that is a voluntary target. As far as I understand it, that's a voluntary target. Um and GMB, the GMB union, when we spoke to them about this particular issue, uh, they said, I don't, th- uh, well, uh, Gary Cook, uh, one of the regional organizers said, I don't think we will ever achieve that in the current trajectory. That is pie in the sky. It ain't going to happen, is what he said. Um, and the Unite Union, their uh, general secretary, Pat Rafferty, uh, I think he said something along the lines of, this is just going to be the continuing story of offshore wind in Scotland unless we get something that has legal targets. And otherwise it's going to be, you know, contracts as usual for everywhere else around the world, but none here in Scotland. So, yeah, I, I think there's a there's a very real issue about. I mean, I don't know how we go about setting that into law or or why that hasn't been done. It's probably something we should investigate uh, in more detail. But the the fact is that you know we do need the we need improved capacity in order to deliver some of these. Um, Scotland, you mentioned Ed. Um, Obviously, we've spoken about that in the past, but a large part of Scotland was the fact that they did put a cap on the amount of money that you could put forward for acreage, which led to a lot of the bidders putting forward local supply chain benefits as part of their bid. This is what we're going to do to support local supply chain to win work and to take work as part of that. Now, as Hamish kind of said, there still is this question of how how large a share that is going to actually turn out to be. Um, so we've already had some companies, supply chain companies, kind of highlighting that you know some of this, 
A large part of this probably will still go overseas, but, you know, it's about different ports, different parts of Scotland working together to build up that capacity and and share out the work. Aberdeen, for example, is looking at balance of plants. That doesn't necessarily mean the, the turbines, but other components linked to offshore wind, for example, they might be able to, to take a share in. I think the Cromarty Firth is looking up at, you know, the, the wind turbine towers. So there's a vision there. It's a question of how quickly they can they execute it. And, and right now we have certain things passing us by, I think. I suppose with those content targets as well, so say, I mean, I know Shell have committed to, to around 40% for their Scotland projects. They mentioned that at the um, offshore wind conference. But then what does that 40% take? Because so many of these jobs are wrapped up in the fabrication. So if you're doing 40% and a large amount of that is consulting, geophysical studies, kind of those sorts of, I don't know, more preparatory works, there are jobs wrapped up in them, but not nearly as much as getting these turbines built and, and, the, and those sorts of things. So... There is kind of that concern that perhaps the 40% or whatever percentage it is for a developer could be delivered in ways that aren't going to deliver these big material benefits that everyone and the unions in particular is waiting on and the industry mm. needs, I think. Yeah, no, uh, very well said, Hamish. And I think we'll just have to keep an eye on that. Um, but, you know, uh, until, until we can get that capacity there, um, then we'll... Just have to see what happens. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll park that for now and have some happier news next, I think. We're off to Zimbabwe, where our old friend Algie Clough is making some, uh, some headway. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. So, Ed, uh, to, to be clear, this is about a company called Invictus Energy, but you'll have to forgive me for latching on to uh, Mr. Burns himself getting involved. It seems like an, an interesting project, getting potentially a bit of uh, love after a time of neglect for, for Zimbabwe here. Indeed, indeed. So I, I, I spoke to uh, Invictus Energy's uh, Scott McMillan this week, and uh, he sort of brought me up to speed on on, on the company's plans. As you say, you know it's it's been a, it's been a tough couple of years to be talking about uh, exploration, drilling uh, anywhere, let alone Zimbabwe. Um, so I mean, I think it's 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 really amazing that you know they sort of stuck with it. And and I mean, I think you know obviously you know Scott put a very good foot forward. He's like you know look, it was it was you know it really allowed us to you know really work through our logistics planning, long lead items. But at the same time, obviously, two years of uh, the energy sector being in a total hole uh, was, was was a bad experience for everyone. So, yes, now kind of coming out of it. So they've got um, a, a, a rig coming from uh, Songo Songo, um, and that's going to be arriving in Zimbabwe in, I think, May. And the, the, the plan is that it should be drilling the first well by July. And I mean... 
I mean, it's it's a, it's amazing, you know, speaking to Scott about the history of the project because, you know, it, it kind of goes back to Mobile, obviously the precursor to, to, to ExxonMobil that was in Zimbabwe, shot about $30 million worth of seismic um, in about so the late 80s, I think, um, and then just walked away, just, just left the seismic data in a vault in Harare and just sort of walked away, shaking its head, uh, having found other things to do. Scott finds this sort of treasure trove of, 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 of seismic delights and, 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 and puts together a plan for it. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's a sort of a, it's a classic sort of junior, small scale frontier exploration, the sort of thing we've not seen for a while. And indeed, as you say, there is a, a role there for Clough Energy Africa, which I think, you know, obviously you can, you, you'll, you'll be able to fill us in a bit more about uh, Mr. Clough's uh, history, but he's got, he's got past with Zimbabwe and, you know, following the last time that he hung up his boots, he, he formed Clough Energy Africa with this dream of sort of creating a, a sort of a new uh, African exploration portfolio. I think there was, I saw some, some, some potential links to Sierra Leone. I don't know what came of that. But now, so he's got this sort of option for Zimbabwe. I mean, it's, it's still unclear as to whether it's going forward. Scott was saying, you know, uh, you know, they have the Clough Energy Africa has the option. But uh, Invictus also talking to, to, to other potential partners. So, you know, obviously keeping, uh, keeping that really, really wide open. But I think one of the interesting things that came up really was, was, was about the sort of the level of sort of institutional support, right? I mean, he was saying, you know, he's, he said, I think the, the, the Invictus is listed in Australia. And he said, I think something like it's the, it's the best exchange in the market for, for, for what they're doing, which I think, you know, which he felt was a surprise. You know, he you know, obviously felt that, London was a kind of a has been a natural home for that sort of African risk exploration frontier kind of game, but then maybe you know that sort of risk appetite is 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 no longer there. Maybe the Australians have got a bit more uh, desire to to take that sort of big punt uh, and and also of course potentially get that big gamble. And just looking at the the numbers, um, Ed, for for, for I mean. It, Somebody in the North Sea would look upon this with uh, envy, uh, surely. I mean, see so what the eight trillion cubic feet of gas potentially. I don't know what 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 what's recoverable from that, but and I'm seeing two ninety million barrels of condensate. So this, it, I'm assuming, mobile at the time back in the heyday of the eighties, as you kind of said, would have had you know all kinds of prospects to to choose from, but. It, it seems crazy that people can't or wouldn't want to get over that. I don't know what the infrastructure is like in Zimbabwe, having said that, but uh, it certainly seems a big enough prize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think it, it does. It does look like an amazing find. Obviously, you know, we're, we're obviously fingers crossed for the for the actual drilling. I think that's that's the real test, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think I mean, I suppose you know, historically, look, you know, gas uh, has been incredibly under neglected in Africa. I mean, I think you know, the old the old uh, sort of adage is that if an explorer finds uh, gas too many times he gets fired <laughs> um, because there's just there's just simply not a, not a, not, a, not a sort of a market for it is is kind of been has been this kind of the historic feeling about about sort of gas discoveries in Africa I think obviously Scott was was very keen to say that wasn't the case in Zimbabwe he was saying you know that we've got options South Africa obviously next door South Africa gets a lot of gas from Mozambique that's going to uh, start kind of coming off its off its peak in the not too distant future so South South Africa will be keen to secure new supplies. He was saying that 
there's also local demand, uh, both sort of fertilizer and chemicals and, and, and potentially sort of, you know, gas to power. Uh, so you know he 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 was obviously keen to kind of downplay that 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 risk, and obviously uh, a, a sort of a, a liquids find would would clearly be uh, would be very much easier to just to, you know to to develop and produce. So you know obviously depending on the you know to what extent is their gas, to what extent is their condensate, and obviously also that's that second that second uh, well that he was he was talking about. So Invictus shot some seismic, 2D seismic uh, in late 2021. And they've sort of found this, you know, sort of second potential target, which 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 uh, Scott compared to the sort of classic sort of East African rift, like a sort of, a, you know, sort of a Lake Albert, perhaps. Um, so and he said that that might be more likely to be oil prone. So, you know, there is, uh, there, there, you know, obviously... At the moment, there's a lot of you know hope, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of excitement, but it's 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 really only when the when the drilling goes in that one one discovers, mm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And and I think just to ask about the the appetite for this, then. So we we talked about Clough, and and you teed me up nicely, so I'm going to talk about him a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, in, it famously retired and retired uh, in quotation marks in 2019, um, and uh, that was from uh, what was then Clough Natural Resources. It's now Deltic Energy. Um, and yeah, no, Algae Clough has been kicking about the oil and gas industry for a very long time. Uh, involved in discovery of the Buchan Field, that's one of the big, the big ones up in the in the UKCS in the nineteen seventies. And I know he spent a lot of time in Africa too. Um, uh, one of our for- former colleagues, Mark Lamy, is one of his uh, leaving gifts for Energy Voice. We got him one of uh, Algae's. Uh, uh, it's got quite a few different uh, books, actually. I think I don't know which one it was, but it had a funny name and a funny title. I wish I could remember it, but yeah, absolutely, uh, really kind of crazy, interesting history around this guy. But he's done, you know, work in the North Sea, work in in Africa too. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can dig out this um, this book. But uh, but interesting to hear that he's got involved in in this project. I mean, uh, presumably they're hoping for more partners to come on in uh, as well um if if they can manage it yeah 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 exactly so so the deal with clough has not been uh sort of completed so mm. basically clough's got a got an option to to kind of come in and 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 obviously you know that was kind of signed when you know just just after cop as we've discussed was you know when uh, when 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 oil was really in the doghouse Obviously, now people are feeling a bit more sort of positively about oil and gas uh, investments, about energy security, those kind of questions. So, I mean, I think, you know, clearly Scott was, you know, sort of saw this kind of uh, option with Clough as a sort of a, I suppose, an affirmation of, of, of the sort of the plan, right? I mean, Algae has clearly got that sort of experience in Zimbabwe. I think I think Scott was saying that he he, he did find a gold mine there that he named after his mum and then sold it to Anglo Ashanti, I think. So oh. he's got he's got sort of, you know, Zimbabwean experience. And I think so Scott was sort of saying that was kind of a, a way to affirm, you know, Zimbabwe as 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 an investment destination. Um but clearly if Scott can presumably get a better deal from somebody else uh, or, or in sort of partnership with Clough, then that would presumably even be better. And I think, you know, it's, it's really a question of sort of, you know, going into that drilling and, and at, at what point a, a deal is agreed. Fantastic. Algie Clough's uh, book is called Get On With It, A Memoir. Uh, so just, <laughs> yeah, absolutely crazy. 30 years of exploration in the gold industry in Africa. So, uh, yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, North Sea and all the rest of it. Hamish, what are you saying? Uh, I was just saying. Remember when we uh, when we gave it to Mark on it as his leaving present? One, he was 
over the moon. He was overjoyed. And two, yes. he went straight to a page where he knew that a very, very rude word was and found it straight away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, he clearly knew, he knew the book well. Um, but uh, yeah, that sounds, it sounds like an interesting one. We should probably try to get Algie Clough back into uh, Energy Voice for a look back at a, a, a career well spent. And a look I forward, think. you know. Like he's and a look forward, yeah. Clearly still doing stuff. He is... He's not, he's not, I mean, you know, as you say, he, he, he retired and then pretty much, as I understand it, went out for a drink <laughs> with a, with a friend and pretty much there and then decided to, to launch uh, Clough Energy Africa. So, look, you, you know, don't get, you don't get to do that after saying to the press, you're retiring. You just don't, man. Yeah, he's just getting on with it. He's just, he's getting on with it. Yes, indeed. And as should we. So that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Hamish and to Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.